0: Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. ¶¶ This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit Fort Christmas Historic Park in East Orange County.
1: So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837.
0: We'll celebrate the legacy of slain civil rights leader Harry T. Moore, who was killed on Christmas night, 1951. So for some
2: students, um, they make a, a clean break that the past. The past. Other students do not make that break. Like the, this is still going on. That and more ahead on Florida
0: Frontiers. Thousands of people from throughout Central Florida converge on the small town of Christmas every year to have the town's postmark appear on their Christmas cards. Although East Orlando keeps moving closer and closer, Christmas is still a rural community located in East Orange County, about halfway between Orlando and Titusville. Fort Christmas Historic Park features a collection of historic cracker houses from the late 1800s and early 1900s, cow camps, and a schoolhouse, but at the heart of the park is a replica of Fort Christmas, which was originally built during the Second Seminole Indian War. Vicki Pruitt is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic
1: Park. The war was mainly being fought because um, of people moving into the state and settling, and they were uh, encroaching upon the land that Seminoles were using, so they, there would be skirmishes. There was also the slavery issue, because the slaves would leave Georgia and hide out among the Seminole Indians, and so they were always having uh, troops coming down, or people coming down trying to recapture slaves. And so it was basically a slave issue, a land issue, um, of course they couldn't agree on, on how to use the land. So the war started in 1835. It lasted for seven years. It ended in 1842. And Fort Christmas, of course, was built in 1837.
0: Many Florida towns grew up around forts that were constructed during the Second Seminole Indian War. For example, Orlando grew up around Fort Gatlin, Sanford around Fort Mellon, and Fort Pierce is still called that from the Seminole War Fort named after Lieutenant Colonel Kendrick Pierce. The idea was to build the forts about a day's walk apart so the soldiers could walk from one fort to another during the day and have protection at night. Fort Christmas was constructed in what is now East Orange County. Vicki Pruitt.
1: They were in a winter campaign in December of 1837. They left uh, Fort Mellon, which is over on what we call Lake Monroe now. And they were trying to establish a chain of supply forts to keep the army that was fighting the Indians supplied with the materials they need. So they were following the St. John's as close as they could without being up to their waste in water and uh, establishing the forts. They arrived at a place about a mile north of here on December 25th and started building their fort. So they named their fort Fort Christmas because they started it on Christmas Day.
0: Fort Christmas was a typical Seminole Indian War fort made of tall pine pickets. The fort is 80 linear square feet with two blockhouses that are 20 square feet each with a storehouse and a powder magazine within the walls of the fort. Joseph Adams is a recreation specialist at Fort Christmas Historic Park and describes what's on display in the Fort Christmas replica. Well, Blockhouse 1 has exhibits on the
3: Second Seminole the New War, the soldiers and the Seminoles. Uh, blockhouse 2 has uh, some of our more prized possessions from the Christmas community and exhibits uh, community life. And the storehouse has exhibits on some of the tools they would have used and then some of the tools the pioneers used. And we even have a model of one of the steamboats that went up and down the St. John's River.
0: In addition to the replica of Fort Christmas, the historic park features two cow camps, the Union Christmas School, and a variety of historic cracker houses from different eras. As Vicki Pruitt explains, each house is staged with artifacts and exhibits.
1: We try to make the homes look like someone was living there and had just stepped out for the day. Um, each home usually has at least one bedroom, but instead of repeating bedrooms, we put special exhibits to tell how the pioneers used to live. We've got a, a textile exhibit, we've got a post office exhibit, a cattle ranching exhibit, uh, and a hunting, fishing, trapping exhibit. But each home that has a kitchen has the kitchen represented, the main living room represented, and uh, a bedroom. They were moved from their original location. Most of them were donated and then we upfitted them to represent different time periods. Uh, Some of them we took back to the very beginning, others of them we left at a later period, Uh, but all of them had to have a certain amount of work done to them to get to the, the periods that we represent here.
0: The cracker houses on display at Fort Christmas Historic Park feature familiar names from Florida's pioneer days, such as Simmons, Wheeler, Bass, and Yates.
1: Most of the families that settled in the Fort Christmas area they, they came in through North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, and into northern Florida, and then on down into the central Florida, and then they even proceeded on down south. So you see these names repeated in especially rural communities all throughout the state of Florida. Uh, the Yates family, I know they're widespread. The Simmons family, um, we don't have houses for all of our Pioneer families, of course, but the Tuckers are throughout the state the Osteens are throughout the state. There's even a little community called Osteen, Florida, the Browns. Um, So these pioneers, when they arrived here, you know, in the early times when they arrived in central Florida, like in about 1858, uh, and then spread out from there, they were very large families. And so as these kids got a little older, then they continued to spread out through, you know, throughout the different communities in the state and build Land, everybody wants land, that's the main issue. Finding a home.
0: As Joseph Adams explains, two or three groups of students come to Fort Christmas Historic Park every week. Well, we have about eight different educational programs we can do with the
3: students. Uh, Today's program is just going to be a general tour. They'll make and taste butter. Uh, We have a program, uh, which is my favorite, children's chores, uh, where they make and taste butter, but they also wash clothes, snap beans. Uh, feed the chickens, they pump water, and the students, you know, the, you know, a lot of the students have chores, but the idea of the kind of chores and daily activities that the children had to do in the past is quite fascinating to them and very different.
2: It's like we went back in time. Yeah. It's like we're in the back of the of the porch, okay.
0: I don't to get on. Okay, look, I'm getting
1: on. By the early 1860s, we had families arriving out here And throughout the 60s, by the end of the 60s, early 70s, we're talking 1800s, uh, we had probably 20 families living out here. And these are our uh, uh, families that are still in the area today. A lot of them, their descendants are here. They built farms, they had ranches, they lived off the land. When you came out here into the wilderness, you brought your wagon and your family, you brought your farm tools, basically though you didn't work for anybody else. You worked for yourself. You worked for your own family. unit. And in the old days, the families were very large. A small family would be six kids. A large family might have 13 or 14 kids. So this is a lot of people to feed, isn't it? So they had to all work. And and that's one thing I want you to think of is as we go through the day, um, the you kids would be working you would have to work for your food. You had to raise your own garden. You had to have bills of corn. They had bills of sugar cane. Um, you had to go hunting for extra food. Of course, you had your livestock. And one thing they found when they got into this area is there were wild cows. There were cattle running all over the state.
0: In now, addition to frequent cattle, tours for students, Fort Christmas Historic Park hosts a couple of major events during the year not surprisingly, one of them recognizes Christmas. Well, the first weekend,
3: full weekend in December, is always Cracker Christmas for us. It essentially is our largest special event of the year. We have uh, about, a, about 150 to 175 crafters, people who make handmade crafts to sell. Uh, then we have uh, demonstrations of you know pioneer skills, uh, we, the syrup-making, which is a big thing people come back for every year, uh, soap-making, uh, Wood carving, uh, weaving, spinning, um, whip making. This year, uh, just you know, they are about blacksmithing. Blacksmithing is about a hundred. Yeah, we do about fifty to sixty different uh, demonstrations. Of course, we have a Confederate camp, and then uh, the historical society sells barbecue, which is always really good.
1: And all of our community groups are nonprofit local groups: the 4-H, the FFA. Uh, They come and they earn money for their group by selling hot dogs or gator bites or um, beef Beef on a stick, stick, that type of thing.
3: We also have another larger event, uh, our bluegrass festival, which is normally the third weekend in March. Right. And we bring in about four local bluegrass groups, but they are really good groups. And again, we have some crafters, but it's not as big a a craft show as, uh, say, Cracker Christmas.
0: But it's two days under the oaks of uh, pure bluegrass music. Visitors to Fort Christmas Historic Park enjoy the historic homes and the Fort Replica, but there's also a playground and picnic pavilions that attract many people.
1: We get a lot of local people coming here to picnic. I mean, our park is maxed out as far as the pavilions go every weekend with picnickers. But then we also get senior groups that come for parties and functions, like during the week sometimes. We have... a lot of people dropping in who are from overseas. You know, they 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 see our sign on the road, or they've Googled Central Florida, and something comes up, and they they stop in here. And some of them repeatedly yes. come back with whoever they bring on their next holiday to 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 see us.
0: Vicki Pruitt and Joseph Adams are recreation specialists at Fort Christmas Historic Park in East Orange County. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and like us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, we were just visiting Fort Christmas, which was originally constructed during the Second Seminole-Indian War, but this wasn't the only fort built during the Christmas season during that conflict.
4: Yeah, that's right. Uh, during the Second Seminole War, uh, the federal government learned quickly that they had to spread their troops out uh, as wide as they could and sort of cast a wide net if they were going to have any luck at finding the Seminoles, You know, the, the very small bands of Seminoles. So what they did was set up um, three major columns that sort of moved south through the peninsula, Uh, And on that easternmost column through what was considered the Indian River country, you know, through parts of uh, Flagler County down into Volusia, Brevard, and uh, Indian River County, uh, there were a number of of small forts that were built uh, around the same time, 1837, 1838. Um, one of those forts was was named Fort Anne, and it was actually in uh, what is now North Brevard County, actually part of the Merritt Island National Wildlife Refuge, just north of, of NASA. In uh, this small fort, it was actually more of a, of a stockade. It was very a, a very crude structure, um, and it was more of a, a, a kind of transition point from the Mosquito Mes- Lagoon area into the Indian River area. Uh, and these columns of soldiers at that time were moving; uh, they were utilizing the Indian River Lagoon, this north-south waterway, to travel as uh, quickly and efficiently as possible down through the through the interior, um, and, and that was called upon. And, and uh, he was uh, attached to one of these columns, uh, heading south into the peninsula, and uh, and found himself at uh, at Fort Anne in uh, December of eighteen thirty-seven. So from this journal, it seems
0: as though the the soldiers had a a pretty decent Christmas in Florida, even though it was wartime.
4: I'd say so, and, and when we think about the Second Summon War, we generally think about the hardships that, that a lot of these soldiers face, which, which certainly occurred. I mean, it was very, very difficult uh, living at that time, and, and many of the soldiers, in fact, died of disease. Uh, but, but during the winter campaigns, when most of the action, essentially, was happening, um, throughout this journal, you, you know, you'll know, you see Mott sort of talking about, uh, he mentions the Fourth of July quite a bit, but he always talks about Christmas, every year that he was in Florida. And we have a really interesting passage from uh, December of 1837 when he was uh, uh, spending at least a week, I believe it was a week, two weeks at, at Fort Ann. So they had a little bit of, uh, of time to kind of sit back and relax. There wasn't a whole lot of action going on. They were just drilling during the day. Uh, but uh, but on Christmas Day, uh, they were allowed essentially to have the day off. And I'll read a quick passage here. They talk a little bit about their, their Christmas dinner, which was a, a little bit different than a traditional uh, uh, you know New England Christmas dinner. Uh, but he says here, We reveled upon gopher soup and whisker toddy, Uh, which were the chief luxuries that graced our board, Uh, by and by as regards to go for soup, he says here, No epicure in the world but would smack his lips could he only get a taste of this rare dish known only in Florida? And again, he talks about drinking whiskey (laughs) along with that that gopher soup. Uh, But he goes on in other passages. They they go chasing after snakes, and and, uh, uh, they hunt owls and and egrets and some of the other birds that um, lived around the the Mosquito Lagoon area. Um, But he talks a little bit and sort of uh, reflects on Christmas, and he says... Uh, but then it was Christmas, which only comes once a year, and to many of us, about those times only came once in several years. So this is kind of interesting. You know, he talks about um, in later years while he was in Florida. Even though it was Christmas, generally they were involved in some sort of military engagement. Uh, they were marching, they were drilling, because during the, the winter months, that was when the the military, the U.S. military, moved um, uh, very often. You know, they they took advantage of the of the uh, of the weather. Um, so they they really didn't get a, a chance uh, to kind of sit down and, and enjoy Christmas, um, but he also talks about this uh, feast of reason and flow of soul uh, and and uh, music. Essentially, there was there were a few of the uh, soldiers who uh, got a little too much whiskey and decided they could uh, they could sing. And uh, he goes on to sort of describe their uh, the revelries into the night and how they uh, um, probably disturbed some of the owls who would hoot at them periodically. <laughs>
0: So even during this uh, this long extended conflict, uh, these guys seem to uh, I- enjoy their holiday.
4: I'd say so. In fact, uh, a few days later on New Year's Day, they were again given a little bit of time off, and uh, he mentions taking a uh, uh, taking a dive into the Atlantic, which uh, back in Massachusetts uh, would have been impossible. But uh, at a uh, at a, a balmy eighty degrees, uh, they were able to uh, to strip down and enjoy a day at the beach.
0: Well, thanks, Ben, and I hope you're having a happy holiday as well.
4: Thank you. Happy Holidays.
0: Ben DiBiase is Educational Resources Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers.
1: It seems I hear Harry Moore from the earth's voice still cries. No bomb can kill the dreams I hold for freedom never dies. Freedom never dies, I say freedom never dies no bomb can kill the dreams i hold for freedom never dies it happened in florida the land of flowers it was on a christmas night men came stealing through the orange grove men of hate carrying dynamite
0: langston hughes wrote the ballad of harry moore to celebrate the legacy of the the slain civil rights leader Harry T. Moore worked to improve educational opportunities for African Americans, supported voting rights, and fought for equality in the justice system. He brought to light many instances of lynching and other racially motivated violence. Harry T. Moore was killed on Christmas night 1951 when a bomb exploded under his home in Mims, Florida. As Robert Casanello from robertcassinello.com reports, students at Rollins College are following Harry T. Moore's example by exploring long-ignored racial violence in Florida.
2: He applied for this job, He you know, put in a bid, won the bid, got the job, and this incensed uh, members of the Klan in his community. A member of the post office made him aware that people were going to come for him, gave him a gun, he had a gun when they came, uh, he shot and fired, and... and, and wounded one and killed another. Um, eventually, he was caught and hanged here in Orlando. And, and then the story was virtually forgotten. Like, there was little or no, no narrative around this.
5: That was Dr. Julian Chambliss from Rollins College. He was telling us about Oscar Mack, an African-American man who was lynched in Orlando in 1921. Coming on the heels of the Okoe Election Day Riot of 1920, This incident has received virtually no attention outside of the handful of people who are familiar with this story. Dr. Chambliss decided to use this history as the basis for a research class at Rollins College. Here, he tells us his inspiration for this project.
2: I was looking towards uh, some community engagement projects for my uh, African American history class and uh, community activists uh, associated with a a group called Democracy Forum they had done some work in terms of the archives and they they'd seen some reference to a a lynching that was not well known that happened in Orlando and followed up and in fact there there was a lynching of a man named uh, Oscar Mack. This lynching was typical in some ways of uh, some of the anti-black violence that occurred after World War I. Um, Mac, uh, he was a World War One veteran. He had served in France. He came back. African-American veterans that served in, in Europe. Um, he seemed to be looking to, to do more uh, to sort of like fight against the, the sort of dehumanizing elements of uh, Jim Crow segregation. And he did uh, a sort of natural thing at some level. There was an opportunity to apply to get a job delivering mail from the mail depot to the post office in Kissimmee.
5: Doctor Chambliss tells us one of the avenues that helped him find more information about this lynching.
2: One of the things very interesting about this case because Oscar Mack had a contract to deliver mail, he was technically a federal employee. And so there was a Justice Department agent that was concerned about this lynching because like he felt that, you know, because this man was technically a federal employee uh, that something should be done, and he wrote a report. And so there's many elements of the, the lynching in the report, and he literally, in his report, said these are the same people that did the Ocoee thing. We were hoping to have more, when we do our second set of oral histories, more people from Kissimmee uh, This might connect to uh, the Ocoee incident and maybe some other incidents that we don't even know about. I mean, one of the things really interesting about this case is um Despite the fact that we were able to find some references in uh, microfilm from the NAACP, and some some references in the crisis, and then some references in uh, Google's newspaper archive, it made many of the students convinced, that, well, there's more. There, there's more things that happened that we just don't know about that were never reported. Um, and so they're, they're, for some of the students, there was a real, a real push to like, how can we find out more about what was actually going
5: on? Dr. Chambliss explains what his class was able to learn and what methods they used to learn more about this history. We're
2: able to come up with a, a fuller story related to the black experience uh, in, in Kissimmee at the time and to really flush out some of the the contours of um, Matt's experience and, and the lynching. And from that, we continued on. Um, recently, we had a, actually an opportunity. We, we collected some oral histories, sort of focused on the Central Florida area, talking to residents of Hannibal Square, uh, talking to residents of Eatonville, and talking to some Orlando residents, trying to get more of the narrative of the black experience in Central Florida in the mid, mid-20th mid century. So. Um, Some of the students that were involved in that class or involved in in, in that effort, which is not necessarily attached to a particular class. It's actually just something that many of the students, like, we would like to continue to pursue this. And we partnered with uh, the Samuel Proctor Oil History Program at UF, and some of their graduate students came down and helped us, and so we were able to do one round of oral histories with members from those communities, and we hope to be able to do some more in the coming months.
5: Dr. Chambers explains how community research helped students connect to people in the
2: local community. There seems to be some understanding. One of our one of the students was from Kissimmee, African-American young lady, and she talked to some of her relatives, and her relatives, uh, which I think is, is very common when you talk about um, anti-black violence, they may not necessarily have been able to identify that particular incident, like they didn't know that particular name, Oscar Mack, but um, they made references. Well, you know, you this is where they took black people to to to, to beat them up or punish them, or, and so it's those kinds of elements that we're trying to to identify and, and trying to to use those things, almost in a kind of. Um, Triangulation, you know, if, if there's areas that people can can agree that these are the these are the spaces that are associated with anti-black violence, what can we learn about those spaces uh, through things like census track data or uh, looking at newspapers or looking at the kind of institutions and, and activities that are growing out of um, the written record as well as this oral tradition to try to figure out um, the elements of of the experience for African Americans. Dr.
5: Chambliss gives us a window into the hurdles
2: to teaching difficult histories in the classroom. It was a difficult story for a lot of students to process, right? So at some level, I am prepared that bad things happened in the past, and they are not. And so in class, they're processing that in a way that you don't want to shortchange that process. Like, well, how to, you know? And, and then there's a, a much more difficult where they try to contend with the contemporary circumstances versus the past. And for some students, that's deeply individual, individualized. So, so for some students, um, they make a, a clean break that like the past is the past. Other students do not make that break. Like, the, this is still going on. Which is has its own set of difficulties uh, for the student and then for class dynamics at some level in the sense that they, because something is still going on, like they can make allusions. And, and especially this semester became, became uh, Trayvon Martin case, became one of these things where like, it became a reference point for some students. But at, at the same time, there's also uh, a goal around uh, teaching them how to do research.
5: That was Dr. Julian Chambliss. And I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontier.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week, and until then, follow our daily posts on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a very happy holiday. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.